So Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was born to him in his old age, and he made a robe of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly, my sheaf stood up, and your sheaves gathered around around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers, but his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had, he said. Are your mother and brothers and I going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His fathers had gone to pasture their father's flocks in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. Then Israel said to him, Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing, and bring word back to me. So he he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. A man found him there, wandering in the field, and asked him, What are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes that dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, Let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, Don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him from their hands and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off his robe, the robe of many colors that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. They looked up, and there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And they agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, His brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit 
and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, what am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a young goat and dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the robe of many colors to their father and said, we have found this, examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. And his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. Thanks, Raoul. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to see you uh, all here this morning. Uh, Ross prayed before, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll get into this, straight into it. When you look around at the world, I wonder if you sometimes ask this question, where is God? What's he doing? When thousands of people die in an earthquake in Turkey, as it's known these days, uh, where is God in that? When there's war and there's famine and there's terrible problems of injustice in society, we can sometimes wonder, what on earth is God doing? Why doesn't he fix things up? Or perhaps a bit closer to home, especially for Christian people who have the progress of God's work in the world on our hearts, we look at the church. And sometimes we're greatly encouraged because God is powerfully at work in people's lives. But at the same time, we see churches that split and... uh, Uh, go off the rails because of sin. Maybe even in our own lives, there are people that we know and love and we we want them to know Jesus, but it doesn't seem to be happening. We may well wonder, where is God? Or in our personal lives, some aspects of life can be great for us and we can say, God has blessed me. But there are also really hard things in life, aren't there? And so many of us, I know, Uh, carry so many burdens in the present and from the past. Grief, pain, failures, frustrations, tragedies. Sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray, but God doesn't do what we ask him to do. We may well be asking this question, where is God? Well, if you've ever asked this question, or if you've been asked it by someone else, or wondered it on behalf of someone else that you've seen going through a really tough time, then it's really good that you're here today. Because in the story of Joseph, God speaks to us and he gives us an answer to this question. Uh, We've come to the next generation of the... This is the amazing story of Joseph, and you can take that in, I'm sure... Uh, You can see Joseph circled there. Uh, We followed Abraham and then his son Isaac, his son Jacob. And now we're up to the 12 sons of Jacob, the next generation. As we opened our reading, it's got one of those headings. These are the family records of Jacob. 
which is not saying we're not going to hear about Jacob, we're going to hear about his descendants. And uh, as Barry so helped, Barry did such a good job telling us this. I could almost uh, cut out half my talk today, Barry, but I won't. (laughs) You did such a good job. Uh, Joseph uh, is number 11 out of Jacob's 12 sons. How will they fare? How are they going to go? Well, at the uh, end of chapter 37 that Raoul just read for us, it's not looking good, is it? It is a disaster. The brothers are full of hatred and jealousy and murderous intent. And Joseph is sold into slavery and Jacob is heartbroken. He says, I'm going to go down to my grave in grief. It is a very sad chapter of the Bible. Uh, And you probably didn't notice this, but through the whole chapter of chapter 37, God is not even mentioned once. May well we ask, where is God? What is he doing? But as the story unfolds, uh, we'll see that even though God is not mentioned here, uh, he is certainly not absent. On the contrary, at every point, God is in full control. And I think that this is the main lesson for us from the story of Joseph. Here it is, right at the uh, start of the talk, and you'll hear it again and again through this talk, because I want to make sure that we all go home with this lodged in our minds and in our hearts. Despite how things might look and feel, God is always at work to bring about his good plans for his people. Uh, Here is the big idea of the whole story of Joseph. Now, if you want a technical name for this truth, uh, it's providence. And this is something that is taught right through the Bible from beginning to end, that God is in full control of everything that happens. Here are two verses from the New Testament that uh, pretty much sum this up for us. Romans 8.28, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. God has a good plan for his people. And everything that happens, even if we think that God's absent or it's bad, no, it's not. God will work through it, even if it is bad for us. God will work through it to bring about his good purpose. Ephesians 1 verse 11, the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. There is nothing that happens in this world that is outside God's control, that he can't use to bring about his plan for the world. This is God's providence. Uh, You see, despite how things might look and feel, God is always at work to bring about his good plans for his people. Let me ask you, do you know this wonderful truth about God? Do you know it? Do you believe it? Do you know it deeply so that when things look or feel out of control to you, you know that you can trust that God is at work to bring about his good plans? Brothers and sisters, knowing this makes all the difference in the world. That's why we need to turn and see it from the text itself in this amazing story of Joseph. Now, some of us will know the story well, especially after Barry did such a good job before, but for others of us, it will be new. And this 
these chapters of the Bible, even though at one level there's, it's, an, it's a fascinating, amazing story of the ups and downs of Joseph and twists and turns, it's also an incredibly carefully crafted work of literature. It is rich. Almost every sentence has significance. And so as we read through it, uh, we could easily skate over the top and miss some of the, the wonder that is here. Sadly, because it's so long, we can't get into the whole lot and see all the wondrous things that are here. Uh, but I'm going to do a bit of skating, but we're going to spend a little bit more time in chapter 37 and skate over to the end of chapter 41 today. And we've got another two weeks to do from 42 to 50 in the coming weeks. So that's where we're heading. And so what I want to do first up is whip through the story again. Uh, and I've got 10 points. James only had seven points last week, all starting with F. Or maybe it was only six, actually. Uh, I could have done 10, all starting with J. Uh, but the, the J would have been Joseph on all of them. So um, I decided I wouldn't try that one. Uh, so uh, just from chapter 37, the first few points come from there. And Joseph was loved by his father. This is the first point. Uh, and there's good reason for this. You see, Joseph was the son of Rachel. And Rachel was Jacob's favourite wife. She was his first love. He worked for her, for her father, for 14 years in order to receive her as his wife. Uh, as James said last week, not something we'd commend as a way of doing things these days, but uh, that's what happened then. And then Rachel couldn't have children for a long time. And eventually she had a son, Joseph, and then she had a second son, Benjamin. And uh, uh, you can see there in verse 3 in our passage, chapter 37, verse 3, now Israel, that's, his new, that's the new name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. He loved Joseph. And so second, not surprisingly, Joseph was hated by his brothers. Uh, we see that in verse 4. Uh, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. It wasn't a happy family, the family of Jacob. They were at each other's throats. And I'll tell you what, Joseph giving the coat of many colours to uh, Jacob didn't help. Now, maybe today we might have thought, well, bad luck, he's got to wear that funny looking thing. But uh, <laughs> back then, they were angry. And not only that, look in uh, verse 2, uh, we get a bit of a, a taste of the kind of things that went on. Joseph was a man of integrity and he, uh, he told the truth and he was loyal to his father and he went out with the brothers and then brought a bad report home to uh, Jacob about what they were doing. That didn't help the family relationships, having him dobbing on them like that. But we also see straight away that Joseph is destined to rule. Uh, God has a plan for Joseph and he reveals it to him and through him to the whole family through these two dreams. And in those days, dreams were often a way that God communicated with his people. They didn't have the Bible like we do that's been written down for us. And so it was much more kind of direct. And here, through these dreams, God shows the family what his plan is. Somehow, one day, all the family is going to bow down before Joseph. He is destined to rule. Now, this didn't help in the family relations either, did it? We read there that the brothers hated him even more. And even his father uh, rebuked him. 
After all, he was only the 11th born in the family. What right does the 11th born have to rule over the rest? How could it be, given that the brothers hate him so much, that they could ever willingly bow down to him? It seems impossible. And then it gets even more impossible because we see how evil these brothers were. At first, they wanted to kill uh, Joseph, but the oldest brother, the responsible one, Reuben, said, no, throw him in the well instead, because Reuben had a plan. He was going to come back and rescue uh, him and take him home. But while they're there callously eating their lunch, while Joseph is down in the pit, the opportunity arises, and Judah says, well, Obviously, he still had murder in his heart. Why should we kill him? And Reuben's not here. Why don't we sell him to these traders that are going past and uh, we'll get some money and we'll be done with this dreamer and we'll get rid of him. And so he's sold into slavery. And Joseph is carted off away from the family, away from the promised land, uh, down to Egypt. Now, at this point, we have to be asking, don't we, where is God Uh, God has revealed his plan, but it seems so far off. And uh, Joseph himself is now out of the picture, way down as a slave in Egypt. How is God going to make this happen? Well, the good news is we've got six points to go. And I'm going to go even quicker because I said we're focusing on 37 and whipping through more quickly. When he gets down there in chapters 39 to 41, uh, we see that Joseph is blessed by God. Uh, He is everything five times we're told in chapter uh, 39. We'll come back to 38 next week. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten it. It's a shocker. It is a real shocker, but we'll come back to that next week. Chapter 39, five times we're told the Lord was with Joseph. Everything he touches turns to gold. And as Barry reminded us, he was raised up and Potiphar put him in charge of his whole house. He's blessed by God. And Joseph also is... Not very technically minded. Faithful to God. Thank you, Charlie. He's faithful to God. Uh, When Potiphar's wife tried to uh, seduce him, he resisted. He said, no, I'm going to be loyal to my master. And even more, he said, how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? Adultery is not just sin against people. It's a sin against God. Joseph was faithful to God. Everything that happens to Joseph here is not because of his sin. It's not because God punishes him in any way. He is loyal. He is faithful. And at every point, he gives honour to God. But despite being completely innocent and honourable, he suffers injustice. Uh, Mrs. Potiphar accuses him of coming and trying to sleep with her. And Joseph is thrown in jail and uh, he's there unjustly suffering. Uh, But that's not the end of it. The two men from Pharaoh's court are in jail with him. They have dreams. Joseph interprets them correctly. The plan is that when the cupbearer, the one who serves the wine to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, right next to his ear, as he hands him his glass, he's going to uh, tell Pharaoh that Joseph's unjustly in jail and he should be released. But then at the end of chapter 40, we read these words. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And so Joseph languished there in jail for another two years. This has been a long time that Joseph has been suffering, isn't it? From the time he was 17 uh, through here now till the time when he's uh, almost 30, he's been a slave 
and now imprisoned unjustly and forgotten. He must have felt like, where is God? But God had not forgotten him. In chapter 41, Pharaoh himself has two dreams. It's the third lot of two dreams. And we know the drill here, don't we? God gives dreams and Joseph is able to interpret them. And uh, amazingly, the cupbearer remembers, oh, I know a bloke who can interpret dreams. And they call Joseph up and he gives glory to God. Only God can really know the answer to what's going on, Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh what's going to happen. Seven great years, seven bad years. And, uh, and he says, what you've got to do, Pharaoh, is find a really wise man and appoint him to collect all the food for seven years and then dish it out during the time of famine. And Pharaoh says, I can't think of anyone better than you, Joseph. And he's raised up, not just to rule a prison or, over, uh, or a household of Potiphar, but to rule over all Egypt. Second in charge only to Pharaoh. And uh, we read at the end of chapter 41, the conclusion there is that every nation came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was severe in every land. He was raised up to rule, and he was a blessing to the nations in fulfilment of the promise to Abraham, or partial fulfilment at least. And then finally, in uh, the last section, which we're hardly going to touch on today, uh, we find that God's people are saved. Jacob and the other 11 sons and their families up in the land of Canaan are starving in the famine. And they hear that there's grain in Egypt and they come down and Jacob uh, and Joseph uh, gives them food. And so they are saved. Through Joseph, God saves his people. And significantly, when the brothers turn up for the first time and meet Joseph, the very first thing that happens is in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine in the land was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came, and what did they do? They bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. The dream has been fulfilled, and they'll do it again and again. But uh, here it is. God has raised up his saviour to rule and bring salvation to his people. It is an amazing story, this one, about Joseph, isn't it? And we've only just done the first part of it. Uh, We'll see even more amazing things next week. Uh, It took 20 years and a lot of suffering for Joseph, but despite how things looked, I'll come back to that one, despite how things looked and how Joseph would have felt, God was always at work bringing about his good plans for his people. Uh, It's an amazing story, but the real hero of the story, of course, is not Joseph. It's God. God is at work here every step of the way. And Joseph himself acknowledges it. Here's a verse from the very last words of the book of Genesis. Joseph is speaking to his brothers and he says, You guys planned evil against me when you sold me into slavery. But God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. You see, the real hero is God. So where was God? When Joseph was sold into slavery, 
Where was God when he was unjustly thrown into jail? Where was God when he was forgotten? God was with him every step of the way. Now, let me uh, show you uh, again just some of the fingerprints of God through this story. Some of it you will have seen already and I may have hinted at, but let me just take you, give you a bit more of a taste for it. If we go back to chapter 37 especially, God was there, wasn't he, giving the dreams to Joseph, revealing his plan. He didn't uh, leave him in the dark. God was there when Joseph went out to his brothers. He's not mentioned, but it's no coincidence that Joseph went out to where his brothers were and they'd already moved on. He's wandering around out in the bush by himself and there's another guy there. How, what a coincidence that is. And this man actually knows that the brothers had been there and they'd gone to a very remote place called Dothan. And he says, go there and you'll find him. That's lucky, isn't it? Well, we'd call it luck. But I think we can see here the fingerprints of God's providence. And God was there when Reuben came back to, had gone and wanted to come back. He hadn't come back yet to rescue Joseph for the pit. But at just the right time, some Ishmaelite traders came heading down to Egypt. And uh, the brothers were able to sell Joseph to him. And in God's providence, he wasn't sold as a slave to some farmer in the back blocks of Egypt, but to Potiphar right there. Uh, in the household of Pharaoh, one of Pharaoh's officers, the captain of the guard. You see, God was with Joseph, giving him success and ability to interpret dreams. God brought the cupbearer across his path, the one who was right there and had the right ear of Pharaoh. God revealed his plan to Pharaoh. God sent the seven good years and the seven bad years. It was God who raised up Joseph to ultimately save his people. He was there every step of the way. Now, it didn't look like it. It did not look like it at all. But God was there. And evil people did their worst. But God even used what they did to bring about his plans. Do you see what this story shows? Despite how things might look and feel, God is always at work to bring about his good plans, good plans for his people. Now, before we just kind of apply this a bit more carefully to our lives, I think we, I want to take you one step back further still to be even more amazed at the hand of God here. You see, God was at work over 20 years, we've seen today, in Joseph's life, fulfilling the promise he made through the dreams But this is actually a small part of the bigger story of the book of Genesis, isn't it? And in the book of Genesis, earlier on, God made promises to Abraham. And one of the things he said was that your descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years before I bring them up and back to the land of Canaan. But at the time, at the beginning of this story, they're not in a foreign land. They're in Canaan. But look what God has done through the evil actions of these brothers, through raising up Joseph, the family are now based in Egypt. And you know what's happened? Joseph gave them, with the the, uh, Pharaoh's uh, consent, the best bit of land in the whole country of Egypt, the land of Goshen, to live in. Just the right kind of place where 70 people in one family might spend 400 years multiplying to become a great nation. 
before God would rescue them through the exodus and take them back to the promised land. You see, God doesn't just work over 20 years working out his plan. He works over centuries. And he doesn't just work over centuries. God works over millennia. The book of Genesis itself is only part of the bigger story, isn't it? The story of Jesus, where God sent his own son into the world and raised him up as the ruler. I wonder if you noticed as we were going through the, the features of Joseph's story that a lot of them are just paralleled in, in uncanny ways to Jesus. Jesus is the one loved by his father, hated by his brothers, the people of Israel who rejected him. Destined to rule, he proclaimed, the kingdom of God is at hand and I'm the king. Come back to sold into slavery in a minute, but he was also blessed by God as he did his miracles and gave his teaching. He was faithful to God without sin in any way. He suffered injustice. He was falsely accused. Yes, he wasn't sold into slavery, but he was betrayed for a pile of silver, wasn't he? as Judas collected the silver for handing Jesus over. He was raised up by God uh, after he hung on the cross. When you looked at him on the cross, you would have thought, how can that be God's plan to save the world? A man who claimed to be the Messiah hanging on a cross, that looks weak, it looks foolish. It can't possibly be the glorious kingdom of God coming to bear. But it was. It was God's good plan. And God raised him up to rule at his own right hand. And he has become a blessing to all the nations. Now anyone can come into his kingdom, receive his forgiveness that he's won for them, and uh, a share in the eternal inheritance that he has provided. And so God's people, everyone who will bow the knee to King Jesus, can be saved and share in this wonderful future. Isn't God amazing? That we have this story with all these twists and turns from way back, 1,700 years before Jesus. But God had in mind Jesus all the time. I am just blown away by the sovereign hand of God working out his plans and his purposes. Despite how things might look and feel, God is always at work to bring about his good plans for his people. I hope you can see and feel the weight of this wonderful truth today. But what does it mean for us? Well, it means that we can trust him. Through thick and thin, in good times and bad times, when we can't tell what's going on, we can trust him. As you well know, the reality of our lives is that often we don't know why things happen. We don't know what God is doing, at least not at the time. Some of us have really hard things to deal with, things that can last for years and years. And we may well look at our circumstances or look at what happens to others and feel for them and say, where is God? It might feel to us like God is not good, that he's abandoned us, that he's not able to do anything. And we might despair or even be tempted to give up on God. But the story of Joseph teaches us that God is always in control. We can trust him. We can trust him. Sometimes really bad things will happen to us in this world. 
Trusting God doesn't mean that we're going to have a a suffering, pain-free life. Because we live in a broken and fallen world, things happen. Sickness happens. Death happens. Hatred happens. Evil happens. God never promises that we're going to be protected from the hard things, but he does promise to be with us. He does promise that one day he will come and put all things right. He does promise to raise up us from the dead like he raised Jesus and give us a place in his new perfect creation. He does promise that he's going to work together in all things to bring about his good for us, his people, those who belong to Jesus. We can trust him in those big things and along the way as we take the hits of living in this fallen world. But there are two key qualifications I need to make here. Firstly, God works out his good purpose for us. And his good purpose might not be what we think is our good purpose for us. He's working to save us and through us to save others and to grow us to be more and more like Jesus. That's his good plan. Not necessarily that I might live in this house or have this relationship or be successful in work or whatever it might be. Suffering is hard at the time, but God even uses the hard things. In fact, he probably especially uses the hard things to grow us in character, to strengthen our faith, hope and love, to prepare us to be able to serve others. How good is it when we're going through a hard time to have someone who's been through suffering before and been shaped and moulded by God to be able to come and minister to us. That's what God does. His good plans are much better than yours or mine. The second thing is to see that we can't always see the good in something until later. It's always much easier in hindsight, isn't it? When you're in the thick of it, it looks like everything's out of control. It feels like God has forgotten me. But what we have to do is see that, well, it feels like that now. But at some time in the future when we look back, we normally will be able to see something of the fingerprints of God even in our own lives. And even if we don't see it in this life, in the life to come, all will be revealed and we'll see and uh, glorify God for all eternity for his good plan worked out in us. So, when we see the evil in this world, when we feel the weight of suffering in this world, look again at what God has done in the time of Joseph. At this amazing story where his hand is at work uh, at every point. Look in the story of the whole Bible culminating in Jesus. Look there. Every promise that God has made has come true. And there has never been a time over thousands of years revealed to us in the Bible when God is not in control, working out his plans for his people. Looking now at how I see things or how I feel is not ultimately a reliable source. It's your real experience but it's not a reliable source of information about what God is doing. We've got a rock-solid source of information about God and what he is doing. 
It's been recorded for us in the scriptures. The word of God that can guide us and can save us. We need to base our lives on this, not on what I see and what I feel about what I'm going through at the moment because there's a much bigger plan and a much bigger God who is good and will always work to bring about his good plans for his people. We can trust him. We can trust him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing story of Joseph and even more importantly, how we see your hand of providence at every step of the way. Lord, we thank you that uh, we can trust you to always work out your good plans for us. We confess to you, Lord, that we don't always understand what's going on, but we ask that for your help, Lord, to, uh, to know you and trust you through the chaos of our lives and through the pain that we feel. Lord, please direct us to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for us, who's been raised for us and is now ruling the world, ready to return one day and put all things right. Help us, Lord, to see him and know him and trust him all our days. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen.